Good morning, church. Join me in Philippians chapter one. I'm gonna be reading verses one and two. It says this. This letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. I'm writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the church leaders and deacons. May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. As we continue to launch our time and our study in the book of Philippians, I just really want to notice this on the front end is that Paul is writing, uh, he's writing a letter to a people that later on in this letter he will say have, that he says has a special place in his heart. And so as he just simply says, I'm writing to all of God's people uh, in Philippi, there are probably specific names and faces that come to his mind as he's writing this letter. There's probably real joy that's stirring up in his heart as he remembers all of these people that he uh, got to spend time with and interact with. Um, and so it's with that in mind that we actually wanted to go uh, to Acts chapter 16 this morning. Um, and the reason we're going to go to Acts chapter, chapter 16 is because it's there in the book of Acts that we actually discover the stories of the launching, the birth of the church in Philippi. And so I think it'll be really worthwhile that as we study the launch of this church in Acts chapter 16, that we'll get to discover uh, the people that Paul is writing to. It will hopefully will stir up more understanding and connection uh, with the people that Paul is writing to here uh, in Philippians. So let's spend some time. Let's listen uh, to Acts chapter 16, and then we'll come back uh, together. Next, Paul and Silas traveled through the area of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. Then coming to the borders of Mysia, they headed north for the province of Bithynia. But again, the spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. So instead, they went on through Mysia to the seaport of Troas. That night, Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there, pleading with him. Come over to Macedonia and help us. So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. We boarded a boat at Troas and sailed straight across to the island of Samothrace. And the next day we landed at Neapolis. From there we reached Philippi, a major city of that district of Macedonia and a Roman colony and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. And we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. She was baptized along with other members of her household, and she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. One day as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a demon-possessed slave girl. She was a fortune teller who earned a lot of money for her masters. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God and they have come to tell you how to be saved. 
This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly it left her. Her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace. The whole city is in an uproar because of these Jews. They shouted to the city officials. They are teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten, and then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. So the jailer put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, Stop! Don't kill yourself! We are all here! The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He brought them into his house and set a meal before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. The next morning, the city officials sent the police to tell the jailer, Let those men go. So the jailer told Paul, The city officials have said, you and Silas are free to leave. Go in peace. But Paul replied, They have publicly beaten us without a trial and put us in prison, and we are Roman citizens. So now they want us to leave secretly? Certainly not. Let them come themselves to release us. When the police reported this, the city officials were alarmed to learn that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came to the jail and apologized to them. Then they brought them out and begged them to leave the city. When Paul and Silas left the prison, they returned to the home of Lydia. There they met with the believers and encouraged them once more. Then they left town. There are these foundational moments in our lives. You know, whether it's we've walked through a, a season or a specific circumstance that becomes life-changing for us. You know, there's these, these moments that we walk through in our lives that end up becoming life-shaping and life-altering for us. And they cement within us uh, lessons or values that will never leave us. When I was in Bible college, um, it was the last class of the week. And it was before heading into a long weekend. And um, the professor was, was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And specifically, uh, the professor was sharing the, the point in which Jesus tells the disciples, listen, if someone takes you to court and, and seeks to take your shirt, give them your coat as well. 
it wasn't the class that was this foundational and life shaping moment for me, but it was actually what happened in the parking lot after class. I was heading towards my car and as I was getting closer to my car, I saw that there was someone inside of it. I got closer and closer and noticed that there was a man inside of my car and he was stealing my radio. Um, let me, by the way, say that this wasn't one of the college students at the, the Bible college that was stealing my radio. It was some random guy that I guess was from the community and, and decided that this was an opportune space and time to, to steal someone's radio. Um, you know, I'll shorten the story, but what ended up happening is, is that I, I actually ended up having a conversation with this man. And I was your typical broke college student and I never had money on me. It's, it, but for some reason, this one, this day specifically, I had $15 in my pocket. And just reflecting on, on what was shared in just minutes before in the class that I just left, hearing Jesus's words that if someone is seeking to take your shirt, give them your your coat as well, I ended up giving this man the $15 that was in my pocket. He, you know, the, our time together ended, and um, but that night I was meant to share a devotion with, with the church community that I was a part of, and it was a Wednesday night Bible study, and um, I, I talked to the pastor that was in charge of, of the service, if he'd be okay with me sharing the story of this interaction I had with this man that was stealing my radio. And this just this lesson of, of, of the Sermon on the Mount. And the pastor said, yeah, absolutely. Go ahead and share that. And I did. After I shared, there were three different people that came up to me, each of them not knowing what the other person was doing as they were interacting with me. And each of those three people handed me $20. One of them specifically said, it was my college pastor, and he said, Vince, even before you started sharing, all I can say is I felt this sense from God's spirit that I was supposed to give this to you. And, and what the foundational and life-changing moment was, is that I learned that day that I could never outgive God. That in any act of generosity or sacrifice or forgiveness or grace that I might extend to somebody else, God does that for me, to me, <laughs> and through me in a way that is unrivaled. It's forever formed my understanding of, of, of being generous, of being a person of grace, and, and generosity, because I, I learned that if I, if I follow the Lord's leading and prompting in that way, he'll provide, and, and he will have his hand over my life. Why I share that story is because as I look through Luke's writing here in, in Acts chapter 16, what I, what I see is that as the Philippian church is birthed, there are these formational lessons that are happening amongst them. That God's leading and, and, and work in this community is also instilling within them lifelong values and lessons. And what, what you'll actually see here in Acts chapter 16 is what God forms 
in this church community, you will actually see that as Paul writes his letter in the book of Philippians to them, those same things are so present in Paul's letter. So what we'll do is I'm, I'm going to go briefly through these different lessons, um, partly because that in our time together over several weeks uh, studying the book of Philippians, these are the different lessons in which we will continue to unpack and learn. Um, and so just by way of jumping right in, the first lesson that I see the church learning is what I'm calling the lesson of God doing the work. Right at the, right at the beginning here in, in, in Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 6, you see that, that Paul is, uh, is traveling like he does around the globe and is seeking to preach the, the good news. And, and as he's attempting to go to one region to another is that he, he feels uh, stopped by God's spirit from going to these certain regions. And then one night he has a vision and it's this man from Macedonia that's standing before Paul and he's, he's beckoning him and he's saying, Paul, come help us. And so Paul and, and crew may make the conclusion that, that they are meant to go to Macedonia. And we find in Luke's writing that Philippi is a major city in Macedonia. So that's where, they're, that's where they arrive and that's where they discern that God is calling them to go do a good work in. They're there for several days and then the Sabbath arrives. And so on the Sabbath, they go by the, the riverbank and as they come by the riverbank, there's a, there's a collection of women that are there. And it's likely that this collection of women is, is made up of, of Jewish women and, and non-Jewish people that have begun to follow Yahweh. And there in that crew is a woman named Lydia. And as Paul is sharing with them, we're, we're told that the Lord opened Lydia's heart and she embraced what Paul was sharing. And here's the lesson in all of this. Simply put, God did the work. The Philippian church doesn't exist because of human ingenuity or human effort. It wasn't because of Paul and Silas's cunningness or charisma. The, the story of the birth of this church community, it's like an altar type building moment that they can forever look at where they can recall we exist because of God's relentless pursuit of us. We exist because God established us. He's the one that pursued us. He's the one that is after us. So it's no wonder that when Paul writes to the church in Philippi, he says this, and I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. It's a lesson that, that teaches us if God did the work, if God began this work, then he will see it through. I'm here because of God's faithful and persistent pursuit of me. And if he called me to himself through a miraculous work and has raised me to new life, then I, then I can be sure that he will continue 
to lead me. So this is why Paul also writes in this letter to the church in Philippi, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. It's a simple reminder and hopefully lesson that will always stay with us to remember God is working. He is working in you and he is longing to lead your life. The next lesson I want to take us to is is the lesson of one baptism. Here in Acts chapter 16, Luke likely highlights the three people in these stories as a sort of summary of the work that God is doing here in Philippi. Why these three people? Luke has a, has a habit, especially as you look at his gospel narrative, you'll see that he intentionally pairs stories of God working uh, in women and men, and, and, and Luke will pair those stories together. And, and Luke does it to show how God is working across all humanity and bringing us into equal footing in Jesus. He's in, Luke is, is intentionally showing the wide work of God across all humanity. And so the story of the church is of a people who normally would have nothing to do with one another coming together in the name of Jesus. You think about the start of the church in Philippi. It's, it's made up of people that probably normally would have nothing to do with each other. You have this independent, wealthy, uh, female business owner. You have a slave girl, and you have a jailer with strong allegiance to the Roman Empire. And what we discover is here is in the summary that Luke gives us of God's work in, here in Macedonia and Philippi is that you, you see that God is reaching female and male, rich and poor, slave and free, prisoner and jailer, young and old, single and married, powerful and insignificant. Actually, in the last story that's highlighted there in Acts chapter 16, you find that the jailer places his, his faith in Jesus, but you also see that those that are in jail are captivated by, by Paul and Silas and their worshiping and their praying. And so it was likely that the Philippian church was made up of jailers whose chains were broken, excuse me, prisoners whose chains were broken, and the jailer who kept guard over them. That, that God's intentionally starting a church by bringing this diverse swab of humanity together. But notice specifically the conclusion of Lydia's story and the jailer's story. And what you'll notice specifically about the conclusion of, of, of Luke writing their story is that it ends the same way. And it's of them being baptized. We, they, they share the same baptism. As different as Lydia and the jailer might be, they share the same baptism. 
And so the Lord decided to start the church by bringing together wildly different people and calling them to share their life together. And again, so it's no wonder that when Paul writes his letter to, to the church in Philippi, these are the words that he, he gives to them. Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. And he also tells them, don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. The, the start of the church and what becomes foundational for them is these lives that were separated from one another are now being brought together in Jesus and they're meant to extend mutual care, interest, concern towards one another. Which leads us to the next lesson, the lesson of partnership and generosity. It's really significant that Lydia is mentioned by name because we don't get the slave girl's name and we don't get the jailer's name. It's significant that, that Luke writes that she is selling purple linen. Why is that so significant is because purple linen was, was the, the fabric that, that royalty would wear. It was likely that Caesar controlled who was able to sell this purple linen. And so what we get from all of this is that Lydia is a woman of incredible significance in the city of Philippi. She's affluent. She has influence. She has significance uh, and authority and power here in the city. But it's not just to show that, but it's also to show that she's holding a significant role in the Philippian church. How, how do we know that? Is because the, in, in two times, in, in Acts chapter 16, we're told that the church is, is hosted in her home. She's, she's hosting the church. And, and what, I, what I find in this is that you, you here have a woman of great influence who demonstrates hospitality and generosity. And that becomes a part of the DNA of who the Philippian church is. She sets the tone for who the church would be. And for us, it's this lesson of saying we are a people that give of what we have to care for God's people and to support the work of God in our world. But Lydia is not the only one that is acting with such great hospitality and generosity and partnership. You see that her home was opened, but you also see that Paul and Silas, after they're released from jail, share a meal with the jailer. He invites them into his home. And you see this great inter interaction and exchange that takes place is that the jailer washes the wounds of Paul and Silas, and then Paul and Silas baptize, wash, <laughs> clean the jailer. It, it's, it's, it's this intermingling of their lives together, the ways that they give of themselves to support and care for each other. 
And again, so it's no wonder when Paul writes to the church in Philippi, these are the things that he tells them. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know that you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. What you find here in Philippi is that this is a church community whose birth was defined by their giving to one another. They showed hospitality, they washed wounds, they shared meals. The beauty of of the way that that the church is described so often in scripture is is the body of Christ. And it's this understanding is that, that we look out for one another because we're so connected to each other. And that it's to our benefit that the rest of the body is thriving and doing well. One of my favorite celebrations in in basketball is that you'll see basketball players after they make an incredible shot or an incredible defensive play is that they'll look at their hands and they'll just like, they'll thank their hands like, oh my God, you're amazing. But it's this point of like the rest of the body is giving celebration and praise for what that bo- the other part of the body has been doing. I mean, it's just a silly and dumb way just to just, just, just think about the church. I think about this place of which we look at with one another. We don't look at each other through the lens of, of competition or comparison. We don't look at each other in a way where we're, where we're upset that someone might be thriving, but we look at each other with, with, with affection because we know that our lives are so tied together. And so that's why the scripture is constantly in this place of saying, like, would you mourn with those that are mourning? Would you celebrate with those that are celebrating? And if God does a work of healing or provision in the body of Christ, you have also been visited by Jesus because that grace that he showed to one member of the body, he has also showed to every other member of the body of Christ. And so again, it's this lesson of partnership and generosity. The next lesson I want to take us to is what I'm calling the lesson of captives and deliverance. It's an odd moment when when. Paul is walking, Paul and Silas are walking around and they're preaching and we're told that they're followed by this demon-possessed girl. And day after day, she's walking around and, and, and these are the words that she's saying. She's following them and she's shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God and they have come to tell you how to be saved. You would think that those words would be celebrated by Paul, but we're told that he turns around after a few days with annoyance and he demands that this demonic spirit would be taken out of her. What do I see in this? Is that What I see is, is that that while you would think that the words of this slave girl were helpful, they weren't. They, the, the words that she was walking around and shouting about Paul and Silas was actually a detractor to, to the words that they were preaching. They, they, they became a distraction from what was taking place. And so it was actually in this moment where Paul, Paul rebukes the demonic spirit within her and that spirit flees that the power of God is seen. And what you see in that moment is you see an exercise of God's 
authority. It's that Jesus has the power. And it's that point in which, which hearts are captured and people see the power of Christ. And then there's this other moment that's, that's highlighted later on by, in Acts chapter 16 by, by Luke, where, where Paul and Silas are thrown in jail. And as they're thrown in jail, they begin to worship and they begin to pray. And as they do so, it says that, that, that a great earthquake happens and the chains of the prisoners are broken. There, there are times when I read scripture and I just, I want more detail. <laughs> I, want, I want like the post-game interview. I want like the interaction with Paul and Silas where they're interviewed by Luke and he's asking them like, what were you thinking in this moment? Why, like, why did you start worshiping and praying? I, I want to know why in the world these, all the prisoners just didn't book it when, when their chains were broken. Like I want so much more detail the story, but, but what we gather from here and what we're called to, to, to step into and begin to imagine and wonder about what's taking place in here is what power was, was recognized by those in jail. That even though they're set free from their chains, they're so captured by what they see displayed in Paul and Silas, they would stay still and actually not flee in that moment. And in both of these stories of, of, this, of the, this possessed slave girl and those that are in jail, is that you see that, that it's, it's at the name of Jesus, that it's, it's his power, it's his authority, it's his name that sets the captive free. And so when Paul writes his letter to the church in Philippi, he opens it up with this greeting. This letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves. We're slaves of Christ Jesus. And, and it's, it's, it's this tension that we live in as followers of Christ that says, I, in, in Jesus, I'm set free. He breaks my chains. In, in Jesus, I have been raised to this new life. But I willingly, I willingly chain my life to him. Because if he has the power to break the chains that I'm bound in, then, then he is worthy for my life to be surrendered to. Why would I want to flee that power? Why would I want to leave his name? It's this lesson of understanding that God loves breaking chains. He loves setting people free. And I love this idea that, that or this, this illustration here by Luke that just so mirrors the movement of, of Jesus, that Paul and Silas go down into the place of the captives and they worship and they pray. And as they do so, the chains of the captives are broken. And what we find about the movement of Jesus is that he descends. He dwells amongst the captive. He proclaims the arrival of God's kingdom amongst us. And he raises us to new life. He brings us into freedom. 
But even though we're set free, we willingly become servants of him. And so you think about Jesus's mission statement. In the beginning of, of, of the book of Luke, he, he stands before the synagogue, before the Jewish people, and he, and he tells them, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. Man, I just imagine that there is a special place in the Philippian heart for the captive. Imagine that if they, they launched a ministry, it was likely going to be a prison ministry. <laughs> that they understood what it meant to be set free. That they understood what it meant for, 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 for breaking chains. For, for seeing those that are captive and oppressed to find freedom. And you look at the way that Paul writes to them. For I know that as you pray for me and the spirit of Jesus Christ helps me, this will lead to my deliverance. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And he also writes, I want to know Christ and, the, and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. There is this lesson cemented in the Philippians' heart. Jesus desires to set people free, but that we would in turn be captivated by him that we would be captured by his love and, and his delight for us, and that we would then orient our lives around him, that it would be a point of celebration for us to say we are servants of Jesus Christ. The final lesson I want to take us to for today is the lesson of joy. It's a stunning moment. It's a stunning moment in, here in, in Luke's description of what's happening. You find that, that Paul and Silas set this slave girl free. And rather than, than celebrating oh, oh, this young girl being set free from a demonic spirit, it says that her owners are ticked. Because as that spirit leaves her, what they realize is, is that their ability to make money leaves them. And so this, this disruptive move that happens by Jesus through Paul causes the, these owners to want to throw Paul and Silas in jail. And so because of preaching the good news, because of setting a captive free, like you would think that these would be like lead to points of celebration and good in Paul's life. What ends up happening is that they get thrown in jail. They're, they're severely beaten. And after they're severely beaten, they're locked in chains. You think about it, those, those are probably painful. This, this, this metal that, that's just shoved and clamped over their skin. And it's in this space where they're chained up, where they've got 
got black eyes and bruised ribs and their breathing is is interrupted by by the sores and the pains and the bruises that are all over their body that they begin to worship they begin to pray it's it's this space where you discover that 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 in a in a cave, in a dungeon, that Paul and Silas are even there able to be aware of Jesus's good and faithful presence. That, that for them, it's, there's a confidence in Jesus. They may be locked in chains, but what's more real is that they reside in Jesus. God is present here. He is to be found in the dungeon. He is dwelling with here with me in my chains. It's the same realization of Jonah in the belly of the great fish, of this space of saying, there's nowhere that I could go. Like you're going to find me here. It's, it's, what, it's what the psalmist realizes in Psalm 139. Like where could I flee from your presence? That, that in the lowest of lows, like you will be there with me. And so for followers of Christ, this point of joy isn't a joy that just ignores the, the current struggles or realities that exist around us. But it's this place where we are, are compelled to hope because we know that Jesus can move inside of a dungeon. Because we know that Jesus can meet us inside of a cave. Because the story that we hold on to is that in which God moved most mightily inside of a tomb. And so, I mean, I love the way that uh, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project reflects on joy. He, he, he describes it this way, that for, for us, joy is this understanding where Jesus is present with you inspiring hope in the midst of hardship. When you believe that Jesus's love has overcome death itself, joy becomes reasonable in the harshest circumstances. We are full of sorrow, yet joyful, because we trust that our loss or present situation isn't the final word. For Paul and Silas, while they're locked up in chains and not entirely sure what the next moment might hold for them, what we can gather from the way that Paul writes to the church in Philippi and the way that they respond in this moment is that they know God can even birth something here and that I can turn to him and worship. I can turn to him in prayer and surrender and see him meet me again in the most difficult of spaces and continue to cultivate within me an awareness that he can overcome. And so think about Paul and Silas in chains and then the way that Paul writes to the church in his letter to them. These are the things that he writes. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak Speak God's message without fear. 
He writes later in the letter, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. The Philippians hear these words and they know Paul's time in the Philippian jail. And, he, and they know that even this letter that he's writing to them is written while he's in chains. And so how significant and how powerful his words are to them, to encourage them that we can have joy in the harshest of circumstances because we know whatever we're walking through, that does not have the final word. Jesus does. And in our most desperate of situations, even there, he can do a good work. <laughs>